is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation facing a great dilemma. Get inside the mind of Vladimir Putin. America's future, our security, our economy, our recovery from all of the problems that America's facing right now really depends upon that task. There's a profoundly insightful column uh, written uh, by um, someone who has written about the origins of warfare from the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy that we will get to that says the first thing to keep in mind about Vladimir Putin is he's not crazy and he's not stupid. It doesn't mean that he's not capable of profound mistakes in his pursuit of evil, which he does pursue. We will get inside the mind of Vladimir Putin later this hour. We'll also try to get in the mind of um, the Sierra Club, known to be a uh, environmental group uh, a, a environmental group with impeccable liberal credentials if uh, you liberal credentials can ever really be impeccable okay why is this sierra club uh challenging homeless encampments what does that have to do with preserving the great outdoors everything as we will find out right here on the Michael Medved Show. And the Supreme Court of the United States yesterday heard fascinating oral arguments about a football coach, Joe Kennedy, who was actually the assistant coach at uh, Bremerton High School. And he basically had taken up a practice. Uh, first, he had a practice he would after he became a, a football coach and he had transformed his life by becoming a Christian. Before that, he had been a careerist in the Marine Corps. And Coach Kennedy uh, began praying regularly, initially in classrooms. The school asked him not to do that. It was in classrooms, not in front of his classes, but with some other kids in his classrooms. And that, uh, he when he was asked not to do that because it involved what the uh, high school feared was a breach of the separation of church and state as if the school were specifically endorsing the prayer after that didn't work he began after football games and that emotional moment as people are either celebrating or they're mourning what happened with their teams just basically getting down on a knee and thanking god in the course of sometimes less than a minute getting down on that knee and thanking God for the privilege of being able to live his life and to lead his student-athletes in, uh, in, in playing the game. And uh, then some parents objected. It was brought into uh, court. And basically, the school district, which eventually terminated the contract of Coach Kennedy over his uh, insistence on being able to pray, uh, it went to the Ninth District uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, and uh, where basically they backed up the school's right to drop the coach and to brand that kind of after-the-game prayer. Well, now the Supreme Court seems to be almost certain to go the other way. And the 
Oral arguments yesterday were fascinating and they were substantive, just as you would expect from the Supreme Court of the United States. Here's an example of the issue as they were looking at it. This is uh, some statements first by Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh and then by Justice Sam Alito about whether or not this had any idea or any implication of coercion toward religious practice or whether it was simply freedom of religious practice. Uh, listen, clip 16. This wasn't, you know, huddle up team, you know, which is a common coach phrase. Uh, that wasn't this, right? Suppose that when Coach Kennedy went out to the center of the field on these two occasions, all he did was to wave a Ukrainian flag. Would you have fired him? Okay. Uh, in other words, uh, there was also uh, a, a question, really obnoxious question, by Sonia Sotomayor, who wondered if a public high school could discipline a coach who decides to put a Nazi swastika on his arm and go to the middle of the field and pray. Okay, that's offensive. It's an implication that uh, that people could have objections to Christianity that are as valid as objections to Nazism. I mean, it's absurd, and it's one of the reasons that Justice Sonia Sotomayor I would say is my least favorite member of the court at the moment. What an obnoxious question that is. The um, uh, Justice Kagan uh, talked about the core question here as to whether, with the way that uh, uh, Coach Kennedy was practicing his prayer, whether that actually involved pressure, coercion, some kind of uh, imposed by the school encouragement for religious practice. Uh, this is Justice Kagan. Listen. The idea of why the school can discipline him is that that puts a kind of undue pressure, a pressure, a kind of coercion on students to participate in religious activities when they may not wish to, when their religion is different or when they have no religion. Now, that seems to me to be coercive of 16-year-olds, regardless if they know that it's him and not the school district. He's the one who's going to give me an A or not. Okay, uh, the idea that there was that kind of practice could be much more specific, in which case, of course, the school would be in trouble and the teacher should be in trouble. But to have a unannounced... Uh, there was no announcement over the loudspeaker said, now, everybody, let's take a knee and let's pray together with Coach Kennedy. He, he did it privately. And, and again, people need to bring up this idea. Has, did anyone feel coercion to take a knee uh, when people are kneeling to protest the national anthem? Now, I don't think that was a, an appropriate practice, and, uh, but do, do I believe that, uh, that if a private uh, organization like the NFL wants to permit that practice, 
uh, for its employees, then this is fine. This is a question about use of government funds. And given the fact that he was off the clock, he was not being paid to be a coach and to lead his kids in prayer, that his job as coach was done at that point, that, it seems to me, is quite relevant to this case. According to uh, Paul Clement, who is uh, one of uh, uh, Joe Kennedy's lawyers, and Paul Clement has argued before the Supreme Court, oh, must be 30, 40 times. He's been one of the greatest uh, and former Solicitor General of the United States. He's one of the greatest advocates on the conservative side of so many of these issues for a very long time. According to Paul Clement, one of Mr. Kennedy's lawyers, all that was at issue in the case now was whether his client could offer a brief, silent, and solitary prayer of thanks after his team's games. Earlier episodes, like the idea that once upon the time that he was offering prayers in classrooms, were not relevant. Coach Kennedy was fired for that midfield prayer, not for any earlier practices, Mr. Clements said adding that the school district's actions violated Mr. Kennedy's First Amendment rights. The questioning by the justices does appear to indicate that more than five, a majority, are leaning in Coach Kennedy's direction. We'll get to that and what's in Vladimir Putin's mind coming up on The Medved Show. questions in American foreign policy here on the Michael Medved show is something that we've wondered about with you tried to probe together with you and the question is why did Vladimir Putin launch this horrible cruel brutal very costly war that doesn't seem to be working at all to advance Russia's interests well there's a new book that actually gives some perspective of on that and and a column based on the book that appeared today in the Wall Street Journal the book is called why we fight the roots of war and the paths to peace I have not had a chance to read it yet I'm eager to do so the author is uh, Christopher Blattman who is uh, a professor at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and also a faculty member in the Pearson Institute for the Study and Resolution of Global Conflicts. Professor Blandman, very pleased to speak to you. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure and honor. Let me ask you, first of all, for many people looking at the claim that uh, Vladimir Putin felt endangered by Ukraine, considering the imbalance between Ukraine and Russia, uh, in terms of population, economic resources, military resources, alliances, everything. How is it that uh, Vladimir Putin, at any point in his career, could actually feel threatened by Ukraine? Right. I mean, I want to stress, I don't think anybody knows what's going on inside his head. And so we have to lay out the options. And, and the one that that I think strikes me and a lot of people as important is that Ukraine has is a place that 
Russians identify with more than maybe any other place on the planet. And, and to Putin's mind, they're a dangerous example of democracy because they've had two democratic revolutions in the last 20 years tossing out Russian-facing dictators and sorry, not dictators, Russian-facing presidents. And um, and so the the question is is whether or not he sees this as a as a threat, uh, as as an example for his own dissidents, uh, as an example for his own people, and and how much this is part of his decision to to try to exterminate that 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 little flame. And you you also uh, mentioned that uh, he's concerned not only about his own people but about other nations like uh, Moldova, which is uh, right nearby, and other nations that are part of the former Russian Empire, really. But for most of them, they've they've already gone far from that distance. Do you, do you think that? Uh, that if Putin succeeded in any sense in this war, that uh, a strike on other victim nations would be likely? You know, if you'd asked me a few months ago, I would have said yes. Uh, I, I think everybody, including Putin, has woken up to some of the deficiencies in his military, and so there aren't many bright spots right now. But one bright spot for me is, is just the fact that I think all of those risks are diminished. But frankly, you know, a lot of people, I think, I think we justified in thinking anything he thinks he needs to do to preserve his regime in, in Russia, he would likely do. Um, and, and so that's, in some sense, that's, that's really the, the number one thing we need to worry about, that he might sort of see some sort of expansionist pushes as serving his own interests. Okay, one of the things that apparently is a theme of your book is that most people think uh, war is easy and peace is hard. You actually think it's the other way around, that war is hard and, and peace is easy. How, how do you make peace in this situation, uh, considering the two months of war so far? Right. Well, I mean, one of the, you know, the, the the book was written before this this conflict broke out, and so it was looking at sort of the broad broad set of wars at every level and across history, and making the point that most of the time we don't fight because war is so ruinous. And you know, we got a, we had an example of this two weeks two weeks into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, India accidentally launched a cruise missile at Pakistan, and common suit. War would be just so ungodly costly between these two rivals that that they strive. They strive to avoid it, and they've striven to avoid it for for decades. And and indeed, that was also true in this case with with Putin. That Putin, uh, he tried to he basically tried everything for 20 years: uh, assassinations, support for separatists, dark money, propaganda, um, and war for him was a last resort. So of course, war happens. I didn't write a book called Why We Don't Fight. I wrote a book called Why We Fight. Uh, but we have to remember that war is so unimaginably costly that there are big incentives to not start them. And when they do start them, most wars in history have been short. Now, short still means months, which are brutal and bloody. But I think for me, the optimistic scenario, I don't know if it's a likely scenario, I think that the optimistic scenario right now is that these battles in eastern and southern Ukraine are decided in the coming weeks or months and the two sides settle down to an uneasy stalemate uh, where the best that can be said is they're no longer intensely fighting. Do you think when you say settle down to a stalemate that that would have to require for Putin to accept it 
the seizure of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, at, at least those two territories of Ukraine that he is now claiming should be independent republics? I mean, I, I think realistically what, you know, what, what's probably going to happen is they're going to control the territory they control, and there's going to be some line of demarcation and maybe a demilitarized, demilitarized zone that's determined mostly by the outcome of these battles, which then may or may not include a great deal of territory for Russia. So I, the thing I have in mind is that maybe this looks a little bit like I gave the example of India and Pakistan a moment ago. Maybe this is the next Kashmir where 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 for decades at least there's the best we can say is that there's no violent conflict. But but how big that that zone is is I think to be determined by, by the next few months. And uh what you seem to be suggesting is that uh, Putin is motivated by worries about the future of his regime. Do you think those worries have been intensified by, uh, uh, for instance, statements uh, by the Secretary of Defense yesterday that uh, that our goal or one of our goals is to weaken Russia? So. You know, what I bring here is perspective from dozens of other conflicts, dozens of, of other levels, rather than any special knowledge of, of, of Putin, and, and so I, I do want to be careful. I would say it doesn't strike me that weakening Putin uh, and, and the United States administration wanting to weaken him uh, is, is anything new. Uh, I, I'm a little bit more worried when we make statements that are hard that can be walked back, but maybe maybe statements about um, extending sanctions indefinitely or prosecuting for war crimes, things that might could make it more challenging for Ukraine to settle with with Putin. Uh, I think we want to support Ukraine and if they choose to settle, because all wars end in settlements. That's another thing we learned from history. It's, it, they're not always happy settlements, but they're settlements. And we want to help Ukraine settle on the best terms possible and not lead to another forever war. And so that those are the statements that sort of interrupt that rather than tell Putin something he already knows that, that worry me. Uh, speaking with uh, Professor Chris uh, Blantman, the author of Why We Fight the Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Uh, we will be right back with more on the Medved Show. Michael Medved show um, one of the very perceptive comments and actually profoundly important comments made by Chris Blattman who is the author of a column today uh, about the strategic logic such as it was behind Russia's war on Ukraine he's also the author of a brand new book which is posted on our website why we fight the roots of war and the paths to peace Professor Blandman writes, Ukrainian democracy presented a threat not because it would cause harm to ordinary Russians. Rather, it presented a powerful and, to Mr. Putin's mind, dangerous example for Russians dissatisfied with authoritarian rule. Some other uh, worried authoritarians about uh, their own rest of populations occupy power in Beijing. 
And clearly one of the reasons that this conflict is so crucially important to the United States is to discourage some imitation uh, power grab by the Chinese communists to uh, take over Taiwan, which is a, an ally of the United States. Do you, uh, do you think that the course of the war so far has actually uh, worked to make a uh, Chinese move against Taiwan less uh, credible and uh, less likely? So I think it's always good to have a reminder of just how horrible war is, and so no one can no one can fail to notice just how costly this has been in every dimension for both sides, and because that, at the end of the day, is the chief deterrent for war and the reason why um, why most sides would rather bargain than fight, and and that's chiefly why I think there there hasn't been an invasion of, of Taiwan. Maybe the one one thing that's new. Assuming the Chinese didn't need to be reminded just how costly this was, and they remembered, maybe the one thing that's new is the unity of Western sanctions and the depth of Western sanctions. I think everyone has been surprised at, at how powerful and far-reaching those have been, and those aren't a perfect defense against these kinds of acts in future, but uh, to the extent that they make the prospect of invasion more costly-looking, then I think it does decrease the likelihood a little. Well, that's very important. I thank you for that. You, you you mention in some of the material about your book the fact that there are so many new books, and really there are about a dozen of them, about a coming civil war in the United States. And do you share that fear that so many of your colleagues seem to share, that we are close to the point of shedding brotherly blood? with our fellow Americans over some of our political divisions? You know, I think I used to think the risk was zero, and now I think the risk is simply extremely, extremely small. So I'm, I'm, think, I'm still a little terrified at that, and I think we all should be. At the same time, I mean, just putting this in perspective, I think the thing I've learned, the thing I've noticed since the, the insurrections from two years ago is that they've not been repeated. Uh, I think they've not been repeated for several reasons. The two that stand out for me is one is I think both sides recoiled, uh, at least in private, from just how horrible this path would be. So they, they recognize this basic thing that I've started with, which is that war is ruinous, um, and it's to be avoided at all costs. The second thing, you know, in my book I talk a lot about the Northern Irish example and what went wrong there. And, and what went wrong there, and it doesn't happen in the United States, thank goodness, is I think instead of when something like this happens, instead of picking up a few hundred people who may or may not be guilty and beating them and throwing them in jail and, and, and exciting anger and, and, and turning this into something that spirals into sort of cycles of vengeance and, and misunderstanding, I think our, our government, the FBI in particular, is very, very good at being very, very targeted, following the rules, following the law, and getting the offenders. Uh, and, and so long as we do that, I think the risk of this spiraling into sort of vengeance spikes and lots of recruitment and angry people going to this cause uh, is sharply diminished. So I'm, you know, I'm very happy to see that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, again, now we're worried about a very different kind of war, and the kind of war that everybody's most worried about is a nuclear confrontation. Uh, according to what you read everywhere, this is the closest the great powers have been 
to some kind of nuclear exchange since October of 1962. That's a long time ago. Uh, do you believe that there is a substantial risk of a, a nuclear exchange regarding Ukraine? So again, I, I don't. I mean, who knows what does substantial mean? A tiny risk of that is still pretty frightening. Uh, I think it's tiny. I think again, that's it, the costs of that are so destructive that I think people even try to uh, avoid it with more intensity. But but these things are never perfect, right? And and if we waver and if something happens, it's 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 pretty awful. And I would say the thing that's changed for me is less what's happened in the last few months, although obviously this is hugely important, but something that a colleague of mine who works in cybersecurity said to me last year before this happened. And he talked about how now, when, when you know, North Korea fired some missiles and, and they fell into the sea, and, and not, we don't really know, is that because our government had, uh, you know, had, had used cyber attacks and were able to stop them, or, or is that because they simply failed? And Well, we don't, we don't know. Um, but the fact that now we have to one, you know, the fact that now the, the fact that one side can interrupt potentially the, the missiles of the other, all of a sudden adds a whole other layer of strategic complexity. So, have they we've put the worm in their system? Have they discovered it yet? Should we be extra aggressive because we know that they probably don't have nuclear capability, rather than before when we wouldn't go there because we knew they had nuclear capability? These kinds of things worry me a little bit more than what's going on right now. And uh, in terms of the ability for the Western alliance to hold together and to expand further, given the reaction we saw from Vladimir Putin to the prospect of Ukraine becoming a member nation of NATO. Uh, what what about the the dramatic NATO expansion they're talking about of Finland, uh, where Russia and Finland have already fought uh, uh, many times, actually, in the past? Uh, Finland and Sweden, which was a historic—I know that Putin's idol, Peter the Great, uh, made his chops basically defeating the Swedes. Is uh, the new NATO membership for Finland and Sweden, would that uh, be provocative for President Putin, most likely? Well, it's definitely provocative, and it's definitely a gamble. I mean, how safe a gamble it is is anyone's guess. It seems to me that his capacity to do anything about it is diminished, certainly more diminished than it was a few months ago. And so that that doesn't strike me as as the most serious provocation that could happen here but but I you know make no mistake I think the, these kinds of choices all these choices that we have to make are very delicate in the next uh, in the next months and years the uh, conclusion of uh, the column today in World Street Journal which is so profound he says uh, Christopher Blattman writes, in 2022, Mr. Putin was insulated, overconfident, and blindly nationalist. But every politician's aspirations exceed his capabilities. The interplay of Mr. Putin's domestic freedom of, to act, multiple uncertainties, and Ukraine's hard-to-reverse democratic drift narrowed the range of possible bargains to the point that the Russian president's misperceptions and ideology pointed to war 
And uh, this is one of the biggest arguments to uh, the Ronald Reagan doctrine of peace through strength. And it's through strength and clarity. Uh, there is a clarion call against uh, a risk that is causing massive, destructive uh, fires, wildfires. And this has nothing to do with foreign policy and it has nothing to do with climate change. What does it have to do with? Stay tuned. We'll tell you the secret. Medved show uh, a few quick items here uh, about the <laughs> the ongoing political conflicts in the United States of America. Uh, Kamala Harris testing positive for COVID, and her press secretary Kirsten Allen said in a statement today, Harris, who is fully vaccinated and double boosted received positive rapid and PCR tests after returning from a week in California. She has not been a recent contact to the president or first lady due to recent travel schedules, Allen said. There are two important lessons here from this. One is that they also say in the Daily Mail report that it is unlikely the Senate will be able to pass anything this week without Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, who also both tested positive on Tuesday, and uh, without Harris, the tie-breaking vote. Uh, look, this is a reminder, very directly, of just how closely divided our government is. And, uh, and then there's another reminder here. Vice President Kamala Harris and Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff were holding a child, participating in the Easter egg roll on the South Lawn of the White House. Uh, and Harris and Biden have not been pictured together since April 11th in the uh, Rose Garden. And uh, that's another reminder of the idea that uh, she is such a crucial part of this administration, one of the president's top advisors. Look, the fact that it's been weeks since these two people have seen each other is another indication that... Uh, for various reasons, the uh, influence of Vice President Harris has been greatly exaggerated. Okay, there is another uh, controversy that has broken out, and it's a controversy involving a, a documentary film called Watch the Water, which has been seen for millions of times. It, it claims that the connection between COVID-19s and, uh, uh, and, and water was causal, that people were getting COVID-19 from drinking water. And then there is a, uh, another conspiracy theory uh, that floated false claims about COVID-19 being vaccines, being even more dangerous in the water because they're made with snake blood and for venom. And some of the, the prominent uh, anti-vaxxers who uh, had something to say about this 
uh, have actually gone into a very, very bitter dispute, unable to come together on on anything factual or substantive. But they they did have an argument that sounds uh, something like this from Dr. Stu Peters, who has literally millions of followers on social media. Listen. I think this is the plan all along, was to get the serpents, the evil ones, DNA into your God-created DNA, and they figured out how to do it with this mRNA technology. They're using mRNA, which is mRNA extracted from, I believe, the king cobra venom. The king cobra venom. And I think they want to get that venom inside of you and make you a hybrid of Satan, no longer just belonging to God or a creation of God's. Okay, I, I think with the background music, it, this is, uh, of course, uh, something that should be of concern to everybody. I would be concerned if uh, it turned out that the vaccine makers were actually using King Cobra venom. Uh, could be something to worry about. Speaking about something to worry about that is very real, this also from California. The uh, Sierra Club Sacramento chapter is asking city and county officials to move hundreds of homeless residents along the American River Parkway into shelters and safe ground spaces, citing an increase in wildfires it says are often tied to homeless camps. In a report and letter sent to city and county leaders, the environmental group points to an analysis it put together using public records from fire departments covering the parkway. With 156 fires last year alone, the parkway saw three times as many fires as in 2019, the report says. Among the chief reasons for the increase, according to Sierra Club, a surge in homeless camps along the river. Quote, most fires occur on the Sacramento section of the parkway and the increase in fires coincides with a stop of enforcement of the anti-camping ordinance. The report states, referring to a county rule that used to allow officials to issue citations for unlawful county, for unlawful camping, which they are not allowed to do anymore. I mean, this is incredible. That ordinance and others like it were found to be unconstitutional as a result of a 2018 federal court decision. A federal court has the power to stop the authorities from enforcing in a park area a, um, a, a, a rule that says you can't camp there. Unreal. Oh, by the way, CNET uh, is reporting the water filter company says it doesn't remove snake venom uh, amid uh, COVID conspiracy cons uh, controversy. The filters can make tap water cleaner, but claims saying that they remove venom are bunk. So, right. Uh, if you're concerned about getting that snake venom out of the water, uh, because you have already protected yourself against the vaccines, then don't expect the water filter company to help you with this. There are a lot of people in the country who have to deal with a lot of different theories, particularly conspiracy theories. Okay, how about this? 
How about having to deal with the unbearable weight of massive talent? Who has to deal with that? Well, I've been, a lot of people think Nick Cage. Nicholas Cage has a brand new movie where he plays very convincingly Nicholas Cage. Is it worth seeing? Check it out. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Oscar winner Nicolas Cage plays Nick Cage, now struggling to revive a stalled career by taking a big paycheck in return for appearing at a drug kingpin's birthday party in the inventive and hilarious comedy thriller The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, now playing in theaters. Nick Cage. Nick Cage? I love you. What do you guys want? I need you to help the U.S. government. That's Tiffany Haddish as a CIA agent who enlists Nick Cage to take part in a secret mission more exciting than any of the varied movies in his past. There's an abundance of laugh-out-loud material with a standout performance by Pedro Pascal as the wealthy underworld figure who's more than anything a besotted movies fan. The film also gives Cage the chance to play the greatest role of his career himself in an R-rated surprise that earns three and a half stars, despite the clunky title of The Unbearable weight of massive talent and on the uh, Michael Medved show uh, next time uh, we maybe will have some outcome of the uh, Johnny Depp uh, trial the Johnny Depp uh, defamation trial uh, is he going to come back and make some equivalent movie about playing himself that would be a horror film I think uh, if you had maybe you could yeah, bring Johnny Depp and Amber Heard together again. Uh, there's also a, a report, and this is serious. Uh, there are growing numbers, and in fact, thousands of Japanese men, maybe a bit lonely, who uh, are trying to get legally married to their sex dolls. And uh, how is that going? And what is the general impact of sex robots everywhere? We'll be talking about that with Jay Richards, who looks at future trends before they overtake us. And then we're going to be speaking to some representatives of the Sacramento County Sierra Club about their desperate drive to cut down on wildfires and pollution and litter and and just the spoiling of our natural splendors here in the United States by homeless encampments tripling of American river fires and controversy unfolding at a uh, high school over a um, very successful girls lacrosse teams praying for peace t-shirts the team was told not to wear the shirts because they could be considered political or religious so you're not allowed to learn about politics or religion at all anymore in school is that where we're going i certainly hope not in this greatest